Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My name is Heather Conley. I direct our Arctic research here, and I have to say this is a pretty good day to think about some cool Arctic mm. thoughts uh, <laughs> as we sweat it out here in July. Uh, CSIS is absolutely delighted to be in partnership with the Senate Arctic Caucus. We have held over the last year, year and a half, a series of conversations. We've looked at Arctic science, we've looked at security uh, and readiness and preparedness, and today's important conversation is about Arctic economic opportunities. Um, in some ways, it feels like we're starting to write a new chapter in U.S. Arctic policy. We've closed the chapter on the U.S. chairmanship of the Arctic Council. We've closed the chapter on the Obama administration's uh, Arctic policy, and now we're emerging uh, to write the new chapter of the Trump administration's Arctic policy. I could think of two no better people to help us think about writing this new chapter in U.S. Arctic policy with two, I think, of our most important thought leaders in Congress on the Arctic. And here with us uh, is Senator Lisa Murkowski, uh, Chairman of the Senate uh, Energy and Natural Resources Committee, which is going to play a huge role in thinking about this next chapter. Uh, Senator Murkowski, uh, Senator from Alaska, you have been uh, omnipresent uh, in pushing U.S. policy on the Arctic. We are so delighted to welcome you and, and have offer your thoughts. And then we'll turn to Senator Angus King of Maine, also a member of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. A lowly member. A lowly member, <laughs> an important Valuable. member, <laughs> uh, as well as serving on the Senate Intelligence Committee, the Senate Armed Services Committee. You haven't been very busy uh, the last few months, but uh, we welcome your thoughts from Maine, which is a very interesting Arctic actor in the North Atlantic. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Senator Murkowski and Senator King to CSIS. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Murkowski, please welcome. We'd offer your, welcome your reflections. Well, Heather, thank you for, for keeping the focus on the Arctic. I really appreciate uh, the leadership that we have seen consistently out of CSIS. As we, as we attempt to advance these very, very important issues. It is, it's good to be with my friend and, and colleague, Senator King. Um, we, we bookend the country between Alaska and Maine, and when you think about the, 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 the sim similarities, but also the differences that you have between Maine and, and Alaska, it, it, it is not unlike what we think of when we think of the Arctic. The Arctic is, okay, it's just big. It's eight countries around this, this portion of the globe up top. Um, and while there are many commonalities uh, in terms of the cultures, uh, the environment, there are a lot of, of differences. And I think it's important for us to remember and understand that whether it is the differences in our infrastructure in certain parts of the Arctic, you have uh, robust infrastructure already in place, and in other places, like uh, the U.S. Arctic, uh, Canadian, uh, and, and and Russia, maybe not so much. You have you have considerable differences when it comes to things like connections, whether it is road connection 
or whether it is a connection that allows you through, uh, to, to participate in world commerce through, through telecommunications. And so recognizing and, and appreciating the, the similarities that, that bring us together as, as uh, Arctic nations is important, but to, dis, to assume that we're somehow kind of monolithic just because it is, it is in a, uh, a, a cooler, um, more challenging part of the globe. I think um, it's important to recognize and appreciate the very distinct aspects that the Arctic brings. So being able to, to participate in forums like this and talk about some of the challenges uh, that we have, but also the extraordinary opportunities that we have with, with the, the economic and the economic potential, whether it is in, in resources uh, and, and our opportunities there, or, or how, how we work to build out some of the, the necessary infrastructure in, in an evolving part of the world. So thank you for the opportunity to be here. I look forward to the exchange here this morning, um, not only with you, but, but with our guests. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Senator King. Well, first, good morning. And there'll be a panel after we're here that knows something. <laughs> uh, and I couldn't help but think, as one of my favorite stories about Washington, 40 years ago, I was a staff member at the US Senate. And uh, so I have an interesting perspective on the institution, having served as a staff member. One of my jobs was to set up hearings. And one day, I called the Office of Management and Budget and said, uh, we need a witness for a hearing. Uh, coming up in a couple of weeks, and the fellow said, well, we'll send you the deputy undersecretary of such and such. And I said, well, I, I don't really understand the titles. Who is this guy? And the fellow gave his, his answer was, if I, he gave me an answer which, if I ever write a book about Washington, will be the title. He said, he's at the highest level where they still know anything. <laughs> uh, and I've come to realize with some shock that I'm now above that level. Uh, but uh, the, the, the Arctic, is, uh, particularly the commercial opportunities, are of great interest. And I think one of the things the panel's going to discuss, and we can discuss, is there will be commercial opportunities, but when? And I think that's a very important question. And, and we, we have to understand the, the realities and the risks, and we can talk about that. Maine has an interest. I used to say uh, Maine's interest is that it's the first port on the East Coast if a ship goes through uh, the Northwest Passage. Uh, the first port in the ports in the United States are in Maine. And it was a kind of abstract example. Well, last summer, the Crystal Serenity went through the Arctic Ocean, and sure, sure enough, the first stop they made after they got through and went down by Greenland was uh, Bar Harbor, Maine. Uh, so King was right. Uh, the ports on the east, east coast of Maine uh, have a role to play in this potential uh, significant economic development. So. Uh, that's why uh, Senator Murkowski and I think this is uh, such a, an important area to focus upon. And we do have an Arctic caucus, and, and it's not just the people you would expect. Uh, Dan Sullivan, uh, Lisa's junior senator, is very interested in this. I, there's hardly an armed services committee where he doesn't mention icebreakers. Uh, but we have people from all over the country who realize the importance of this, uh, of this new region. The way I like to think of it is, it's as if we suddenly discovered the Mediterranean Sea. It's a very large body of water that has uh, significant neighbors, uh, multiple countries, uh, significant potential in, in a variety of ways. Uh, but the question is, can we develop it, use it, 
utilize it uh, as international waters without going through all the wars that they went through uh, over a thousand years uh, surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. And we have fortunately institutions uh, like the Arctic Council and, and, uh, and the United Nations and others that will hopefully help us through this area. The other thing that's important, and I'll conclude with this, is that thus far anyway, it's an area of, co of cooperation. Uh, even where we're uh, dealing with countries that are sometimes in adversarial relationships, I won't mention any of those, Russia. Um, <laughs> but this is an area where we have been able to work uh, somewhat cooperatively and, and enter into agreements about fisheries and, and uh, hopefully in the future about energy and, and other things. Uh, so I, I think this uh, is an immensely important area and uh, I, I'm delighted that we're talking about it now uh, and can deal with some of these emerging issues as they emerge rather than dealing with them as a crisis at a moment of, of, of some kind of conflict. So those are my thoughts. Well, thank you so much. And we know you uh, have to return to Capitol Hill very promptly at, at 9 o'clock. So let me begin by, I think, picking up Senator Murkowski. You're right, there are many Arctics. There are very populated with, with infrastructure Arctics. That's the European Arctic. The North American Arctic is scarcely populated with limited uh, amount of, of infrastructure. It seems to me that a lot of the economic opportunities in the Arctic are going to be uh, energy-based. And there's both uh, myth and reality uh, to those uh, energy resources. Senator Murkowski, you've uh, been encouraging and put forward at the end of June the Energy and Natural Resources Act. Uh, I know during uh, Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke's uh, hearing very much focused on how can you revitalize uh, the energy potential of Alaska. Help share your thoughts on, on what you would like to see, what would your perfect U.S. Arctic economic position be and how energy uh, issues are going to either drive that or, or not. We know uh, Eni, uh, the Italian energy company, will be drilling in Cook Island at the end of December. Um, that's something very new since Shell uh, left the, the offshore uh, Chucky Sea. Help us understand your vision for energy development in Alaska. Well, we have extraordinary potential. We've known that uh, for a, a long time, um, but our reality has been limited by, by access. Our, our access has been limited by certain policies, and so how we can unleash that, that economic opportunity is something that we have been working towards for a long time. I think we have a, a receptive um, administration to be working with as we, as we look to how we can better facilitate access. Um, it, it is not just the, the onshore opportunities that we have been developing over the past 40 years, but we have offshore opportunities as well. But they are difficult, they are challenging, they are expensive, and we know that. And so making sure that you have a regulatory framework that is understandable um, is, is an absolute must and a priority. Um, and, and, and then making sure that as, as an Arctic, we are working cooperatively with one another to ensure that there are certain protocols in place. Nobody. Nobody wants to see uh, an, an oil spill. So the, the effort to ensure that uh, you have high standards, um, are, it, it's, that is an imperative. 
but making sure that we're working cooperatively as Arctic nations um, needs to, again, be another priority. So thus, uh, one of the binding agreements out, one of the three binding agreements out of the Arctic Council has been focused on oil spill uh, prevention and, and response, that cooperative um, uh, engagement. Uh, it was just a couple years, I think it was in 2014, um, there was, a, there was a, a barge that was locked in the ice up in the Arctic and it, it uh, was, it stayed stuck for a while until it was not and it just kind of floated around. We saw where the currents eventually took that, moving it over into Russia. Just a reminder that what might happen in offshore U.S. waters doesn't necessarily stay there, nor does it stay in Russia. So if there is uh, a, a, an incident, uh, again, a level of, of a preparation and response, whether it's search and rescue, oil spill pr uh, preparedness, um, uh, these are the things that, again, you know, we want to make sure that there is, is a, a level of cooperation. So whether it's the U.S. Arctic and, and our opportunities to access our resources, uh, we're seeing Russia uh, moving quite, um, quite quickly in terms of their uh, oil resources in the Arctic and um, uh, seeing levels of, of production there that uh, is, is really very much stepped up. So we know that it is coming and uh, making sure that we also are a participant in this I think is important. It's part of my, my uh, vision for, for Alaska and the U.S., but making sure that we're all working together as Arctic nations um, uh, to, to be prepared for that economic reality is an important part of what we do. And Senator, thank you so much, Senator Murkowski. Senator King, um, let's talk about a little bit of infrastructure um, and thinking about port facilities. You have really thought about the North Atlantic, re-envisioning the North Atlantic as an economic space, fisheries, shipping, whether the Northwest Passage becomes a, a more uh, an increasingly used passageway. What are some of you, what is your vision here if you could help direct U.S. policy. We know we have some challenges on the Alaskan side. There is no deep water port uh, mm -hmm. facility. We've been studying the matter. We don't have that infrastructure. How is the vision on the North Atlantic Well, we've side got a port Arctic? in Eastport, Maine, that you can be as literally, I'm not making this up because I've seen the depth finder, you can be in a boat this far from the shore and it's 65 feet of water right underneath mm -hmm. you with no dredging, no mm -hmm special nice. infrastructure. <laughs> uh, port envy. Uh, <laughs> Truly uh, port yeah. envy. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, it is one of the, the, the assets that, that we have. Uh, the United States, certainly we do a lot of exporting, but uh, we've had such a valuable internal market that we haven't really, a lot of our businesses don't think about exporting. They, they're, the, the domestic market is so good, uh, but there is that huge market out there. Uh, I used to speak in Maine, and I'd start my speech by saying 5%. And everybody looked at me, just as you're looking at me, in sort of puzzlement. 5% is the proportion of the world's population that lives in North America. That means 95% of the market is somewhere else. And in Maine recently, and you're going to hear from uh, Dana Eidness from our International Trade Center, we've developed a, a, a sort of orientation toward uh, the North Atlantic. Uh, uh, the Icelandic shipping company Aimskip has made its American uh, 
headquarters in Portland, and we're now doing a lot of trade that's growing, and Dana can talk about this, with Iceland, but also with Scandinavia, Scotland, uh, essentially Northern Europe. So um, we see this as a real opportunity both for import and export. We recently sent an entire container full of beer to Iceland where they had a whole thing of Maine craft beer. Craft beer is the fastest growing industry in Maine right now. I think we've got over a thousand people, 90 breweries. Uh, but there, there are all of these kinds of opportunities. Plus, if, if ships are coming through, and we've got a, a gentleman here from Maersk, uh, the, the, the east, east Coast is where many of them will be headed, or Europe. It is uh, significantly shorter steaming time, but there are also countervailing risks, which we're going to hear about, the, of ice and insurance and uh, all, the, all of those kinds of things. It's not, it's not something that's going to happen uh, tomorrow by any means. Uh, but it, we've got to be thinking about it. And, and uh, our port resources, we think of ourselves as a, as a port state. But like, let me just digress just for a moment on UNCLOS. It's awful that we're not having acceded to the UN Law of the Sea Treaty. I mean, it's, it's a huge self-inflicted wound. And my colleagues who are, who are reluctant about this think of it as a violation of sovereignty. You're giving up sovereignty. We can't give up our sovereignty. Well, I think of it like the homely traffic light that's out across the street right there. That's an, that's an incursion into your sovereignty, your sovereign right to drive straight through that intersection. You accept that limitation on your sovereignty when the red light comes on in exchange for the likelihood that you won't get killed going through the intersection. It's a, it's a, it's a giving up of personal freedom in exchange for a greater uh, degree of freedom to, to exercise your, your, uh, your, your life and livelihood. Treaties are the same. Yes, you give up some rights, but you gain other valuable rights. And right now, we are not in the game when it comes to establishing continental shelf, a location of where shipping can be, where, what, what the fishing grounds are. We aren't even literally at the table. And I, as you can tell, I, I'm pretty passionate about this. I understand my colleagues' reluctance about it, but I don't think they're thinking about it in the context of, yes, you give up something, but you get something that, in my view, is more valuable. So, I just wanted to touch on that. You and my colleague uh, knows that I am absolutely lockstep with yeah. him yeah. on this. And this is, this is something that we have got to continue the, the push and the initiative on. Uh, I made comments yesterday at a symposium that was put on by the US Arctic Research Commission that Senator right. King was at as well, and mentioned that I think uh, there's, there's some momentum there. I think we've seen change in circumstance. I think we've had colleagues who are perhaps looking at uh, the, the Law of the Sea Treaty perhaps a little bit differently. And so I'd like to think that we've got some room to, to revitalize this discussion and, and hopefully keep, keep move towards them. ratification. Yeah. yeah, we're going to have to, I mean, it, for me, it's a violation of leadership and opportunity. We are not able to gain the benefits of extending our outer continental shelf, the seabed authority. There's so much opportunity there and leadership uh, mm -hmm. for, for others. So, well, we, yeah. we certainly fully support. One last question. What would be the one thing that you would ask the Trump administration to do today to advance U.S. Arctic policy? 
Well, recognizing the keen interest that this administration has in infrastructure, I would impress upon them the, uh, the immediacy for Arctic-related infrastructure, whether it is Deepwater Port in, in Nome, whether it is increased funding for uh, our charting. Some might not think about that as infrastructure, but if you don't know what's, what's on the bottom down there uh, and you're, you're moving through, uh, that infrastructure that we just paid a lot of money for uh, is in jeopardy. Uh, in, in also included as part of infrastructure, of course, is, is the icebreaker and, and again, more than one icebreaker recognizing that uh, the, the, the studies that are out there suggest six. Um, there, was just, there was just a uh, uh, study that was released just this past week um, looking at the, uh, the, the efforts that we can make in making sure that the costs are brought down, there's levels of efficiency, but, but again, recognizing that this is not just a one, uh, a one icebreaker request, that we need multiples and, and, and moving out on that. Uh, the infrastructure related to uh, our, our communications, I mentioned broadband, and you'll hear from Tara Sweeney on, on that. Tara. Uh, had been the chair of the Arctic Economic Council and has, has great leadership in these areas. But if, if we don't have basic infrastructure in place, the ports, the, the telecommunications, the, the, the mapping, the charting, it, it is hard to be a broader participant in, in these Arctic economic opportunities. So I look at that and say there's much uh, of, of this that is, quote, shovel ready. It could make a difference today. It will certainly make a difference in the long haul. Thank you. Senator King, your advice. I, I would agree on exactly those points and add one, and that is continued support for science. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an area that we don't know much about, and we're learning. Uh, for example, at, at, I think it's at Bigelow Lab in Maine, which is one of our great research labs on the coast. They're studying dealing with oil in cold climates and what, what happens if, there, if something happens. Where does it go? How do you, you know, it's a whole different issue than the Gulf of Mexico. We need a lot of scientific and charting is part of it, I think. Mm -hmm. But the more data that we have, the better policy we can, we can have. And, and I think uh, I would hope that the administration would continue to support uh, research, whether it's at uh, you know, NOAA or, or the Coast Guard or the, the various places where research resides. Uh, that will really help us understanding the currents, understanding the, uh, the fisheries, what's there, how much, what's sustainable. Uh, uh, all of those things, I think, uh, I would add that, and I, I think it's in effect as part of infrastructure, really. Uh, but uh, I think that would be the, the other thing that I would urge the administration. And on top of that, just generally pay attention to this subject. Uh, keep, keep a focus on it. Have someone, is Admiral Papp still in? In place? So that's a great, great question. We really don't have a, a clear understanding of whether the U.S. Special Representative for the Arctic will be, uh, there will be a person appointed, will they keep that position? Um, really where the organizational structure, I the White House had the Arctic I think it would be a huge mistake to allow committee. that office to lapse. Yeah. 
yeah. uh, because you need somebody who wakes up every morning and worries and says, about this region. What's right. going on in the mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, I think you have just helped write the first page or two of this new chapter <laughs> and what we need to do and where we need to focus. Thank you both for Thank your you. constant, uh, you've been very visible speaking publicly the last several weeks on this issue. Thank you. Uh, we know your time is uh, in incredibly valuable, and we appreciate you sharing that with us. You've both introduced my next panel, so you've done my job for me. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, um, we covered all. Of we covered the whole escape, the landscape, but no, thank you uh, so much. Colleagues, uh, the senators are going to have to depart now uh, to make some important meetings on the Hill, so I'm going to ask you to remain seated. I'm going to, in a moment, welcome the panel up, so we're not going to move a second, but before we do, any of that, please join me in thanking Senator Murkowski and Senator King. Thank you. Thank you. Boy, we, we managed almost boy, girl, boy, girl. That's great. <laughs> okay. All right. The, the panel that has been already uh, previewed, uh, again, thank you all so much. We have really assembled uh, fantastic uh, experts and thought leaders, practitioners, and Sometimes we get a little stuck in our theory on policy and what we think it should be, and then we talk to practitioners and they tell us how it really works. Let me uh, very briefly introduce all four of our panelists and then get out of their way and they can help us understand Arctic economic opportunities as well as their li limitations. Let me begin with Dr. Walter Cruikshank, Acting Director of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Man Management in the Department of Interior. Dr. Cruikshank has uh, had a distinguished career over over 30 years in the Department of Interior. Um, he's, uh, prior to this current position, he served as a deputy director uh, in uh, the predecessor to, to BOEM and has really been one of the, the key, uh, key colleagues that have been thinking about uh, the uh, offshore leasing opportunities and looking at the Outer Continental Shelf, future leasing opportunities. So we're delighted that uh, Dr. Cruikshank can be with us and help us uh, gain some of those uh, insights. Immediately to Dr. Cruikshank's left, uh, let me introduce Tara Sweeney, Executive Vice President in External Affairs in the Arctic Slope Regional Corporation, um, which I have to say, when you, you, you look at the uh, Arctic Slope Regional Corporation, a locally owned and operated business in Alaska with revenues in excess of $2 billion and 10,000 employees worldwide. It's, it's, it's significant. Uh, Tara is a native of Barrow, Alaska, uh, and as mentioned, she uh, served as the, the chairperson of the Arctic Economic Council. That is now, uh, that chairmanship is uh, switched to Finland, who's now the, the chairman of the Arctic Council itself. But Tara, I hope you can also help us reflect on what you did as, as chair and your thoughts on the uh, Arctic Economic uh, Council. And then from the great state of Maine, uh, we have Dana Eidness, Director of the Maine North Atlantic Development Office in the Maine International Trade Center. Dana uh, has uh, taken on this job since January of 2014 and uh, has served in previous uh, international trade positions in Vermont. Uh, I really love this new thinking about a North Atlantic economy. I think this is a 
very exciting opportunity, and we're looking forward to, to Dana's thoughts on that. And then we're going to con conclude with a colleague of ours uh, who, it's been a little while since we've had Steve at CSIS, but uh, we count him as a, a real expert that we pull on to tell us about the realities of Arctic shipping, not our, our uh, philosophy on Arctic shipping. Steve is the Senior Vice President of Maritime Services from uh, Maersk Line Limited. Steve is a graduate from the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, so he is truly a practitioner. He has sailed, and uh, uh, he is, I think, going to uh, give us a very big dose of reality in what the Arctic shipping environment looks like today and may look like in the future. So uh, as an Arctic researcher, I am sitting back and my notes and my pen are at the ready. Take it away, Dr. Krishank. Tell us what the opportunities are in offshore energy off of Alaska. Welcome and thank you. Thank you, Heather. Uh, I'm from the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. Our responsibility is for energy and mineral resources on the country's outer continental shelf, roughly three miles offshore to 200 miles or more offshore. Uh, that includes oil and gas, it includes renewable energy, it includes hard minerals. Uh, but today, when we're talking Arctic, we're talking oil as, as the, the commodity of interest. Um, federal OCS has a great deal of potential, and that's why the conversation keeps coming up. Uh, we estimate uh, that the average, the average estimate of the resources available in the Beaufort and Chukchi Seas is about 23.6 billion barrels of oil undiscovered. To put that in context, TAPS, uh, since its opening, has moved about 17 billion barrels of oil. The Gulf of Mexico OCS, which is one of the world's premier offshore oil and gas basins, has produced 20 billion barrels of oil over the last 50 years. So the, the size of the prize in, in the Arctic uh, offshore is extremely large, uh, and it, and, and it may, may be bigger. There's been some, uh, some significant discoveries over the past uh, year or two uh, since we last did our assessment. Uh, Kalos Energy and Smith Bay, uh, uh, the Armstrong uh, discovery, uh, ConocoPhillips at, at Willow. Uh, so we are, are actually starting to take a, a look at reassessing what we see in, in, in the near shore of Beaufort uh, and maybe moving that, that estimate up. Um, so if the prize is so big, why is there not so much activity out there? Uh, there? There has been some, obviously there's been about 38 exploration wells drilled in the Arctic OCS uh, dating back to 1981, but it's still a very largely unexplored or underexplored area. And that is because of, of the challenges that uh, you heard the senators uh, speak about uh, just a few minutes ago. The, the challenges of being a remote area with little infrastructure. Part of that is how you're going to get the oil to market. Where Shell was drilling uh, a couple years back, they would have needed a huge discovery to actually be able to, to get that oil to market. Where they were drilling was 70 miles offshore in the Chukchi, and from there, another 300 miles to the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System. It's an awful lot to ask for a single discovery, a single project to be able to support the level of investment needed uh, to, to create the infrastructure. Uh, to support uh, moving that oil to market. Uh, Deepwater ports you've heard about and, and the lack, lack of them up in Alaska, that would be necessary for, for any sort of, of uh, long-term uh, development to occur. And there's also really a lack of supporting infrastructure onshore, just really at the community level, uh, roads, housing, uh, workforce. Um, there, there are a lot of skilled people there, but clearly not enough 
to undergo a, a serious uh, and, and large-scale uh, series of developments. So um, the economics are, gonna, are challenging there, and they're going to remain challenging there uh, at, at the prices that we're seeing now and, and most people are seeing over the next few years at least. Uh, the advantage about the Arctic, of course, in that sense, is it's not today's prices that necessarily matter. It's the prices that you see coming down the road. Um, if you are to, to find something in the Arctic, it's going to, if, once you get a lease, which is a few years off, it'll probably, there are 10-year leases, it's late in the, uh, the term where you explore. If you find something, it's probably another 10 or 15 years before you're in production. So you're not worried so much about today's prices as what you see happening long term. And, and obviously there's a lot of uncertainty around that which creates risk for, uh, for companies and thus uh, helps explain why so few companies have been willing to, to even do any exploration up there. So where are we right now in terms of uh, offshore in the Arctic? Uh, we have uh, three projects that are, that are ongoing. Uh, there's North Star, which is a fuel that's been producing since 2001. That is actually, uh, the facility is actually in state waters, but it's producing oil from beneath both state and, and federal leases. Uh, we are currently looking at another uh, possible development, a plan to uh, develop the Liberty uh, field, which is about 150 million barrels of, of high quality oil. Uh, we are reviewing that plan now, uh, and uh, the Hill Corp plans to bring that online in 2020 or 2021. And then just uh, last week, we approved uh, ENI's plan to explore uh, in the Beaufort as well, uh, the Nakayachip North uh, prospect that is just north of, of some development in state waters they have. What, what, what is common about uh, all of these projects is they are in the near shore Beaufort Sea, shallow water where, where uh, you can develop uh, from, from gravel islands uh, and all very close to existing infrastructure to, to get you to taps. And there are other uh, prospects as well, ASRC uh, has about uh, 20, 21 leases uh, in the Beaufort as well that, that sort of fits the same description. Um, so that's, that's what it takes to, to, to move forward right now is, is having something that you can develop relatively inexpensively that is close to the existing infrastructure. Longer term, um, it's hard to say what the investment will be, but there won't be any if there aren't leases made available for folks. And, and President uh, Trump issued an executive order at the end of April uh, directing us to start developing a new five-year program uh, for oil and gas leasing on the OCS. The current program covers 2017 to 2022. It does not include any areas in the Arctic. Uh, that was a decision of the Obama administration. Uh, and normally we would be waiting a few years before we start developing a new program, but we have uh, been directed by the President and Secretary Zinke to start work on a new one. Uh, earlier this month we put out our first step in that public process, a request for input, um, where we're really looking at the entire OCS uh, off of all of our coasts and getting input from folks to help us start uh, doing the analyses needed for the secretary to make a decision. Uh, the, the, the law has a, a very process-rich uh, approach to, to process looking rich. at uh, oil and gas leasing. It'll take two to three years before we can get a new five-year program in place. Uh, the law requires three separate proposals, uh, the first of which we, we hope to have out by the end of, of the year, but uh, it'll be a couple years down the road before we'll know whether the Arctic will be included in, in that new program or not. 
Great. Well, thank you so much. I know we'll have lots of uh, questions to come back and uh, picking the, that. Uh, that was a very rich, uh, process rich. That's a new one. That's, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, uh, but thank you so much for that conversation. Tara, how does the, you're closer to this, how does this look, uh, particularly the energy questions uh, from the North Slope? Well, thank you so much for allowing me to participate in this panel. Uh, and I really appreciated the, the comments made by Senators Murkowski and King. Uh, I've had the opportunity to participate in various conferences with them. And the message uh, that they have delivered in Reykjavik or Tromsø uh, is consistent with what we're hearing today. And they did a great job of explaining uh, where we are with respect to kind of Arctic policy and Arctic strategy. Uh, I'm from Utkarvik, which is formerly known as Barrow, Alaska. And uh, I grew up in rural Alaska and uh, currently serve with Arctic Slope Regional Corporation. And I was also the chair for the Arctic Economic Council, and I can talk about that a little later. Uh, but with respect to the North Slope, uh, one thing that I would say is it's important for those who live outside of Alaska and outside of the Arctic to understand that the U.S. Arctic is dependent upon oil and gas development. We are an extremely remote part of this country, that my hometown is the most northern community in the U.S., right along the Arctic Ocean, and uh, the region that I come from is about 55 million acres in size, uh, with eight communities and about eight to 9,000 people that live in the North Slope. Uh, there are no roads that connect our community, uh, our villages together, and the only year-round access is by air travel. I was talking to the Uber driver uh, yesterday, and he, asked, well, what did you do on weekends if you played sports? I said, our school bus was a Navajo airplane, and we would travel uh, from village to village to play um, basketball, uh, which is a huge sport in, in Alaska. Uh, and so as we look at oil and gas development on the North Slope, um, it fuels our communities. It, it provides us with a tax base so that we have the uh, opportunity to have running water, flush toilets, police and fire protection. And it's in a very, very remote, uh, extreme living conditions where uh, the, the cost of living is extremely high. And so uh, while we are seeing very low oil prices right now, it has an impact on the economy in Alaska, uh, and yet, uh, we have the Trans-Alaska Pipeline that is in need of additional oil to flow through the, the TAPS line uh, to keep it in operation. And so when you look onshore at the, the perspectives inside uh, the National Petroleum Reserve and the not-so-controversial Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, um, there are uh, significant prospects onshore, and there are significant prospects offshore. You mentioned uh, Smith Bay, and uh, my great-grandfather had walked that area to show uh, officials from the Navy where the oil seeps were, and we have um, his handwritten notes from, uh, I think it was like 1923. Yeah, so uh, 
we certainly understand the importance of oil and gas development from where I come from. Uh, with respect to the Arctic Economic Council, I don't know if your audience is familiar. I see some very familiar faces, uh, John and, and Drew there, uh, that we've worked on Arctic issues together. Um, but in, after years of negotiation within the Arctic Council, uh, in 2014, under the Canadian chairmanship, uh, Leona Aglukak, who was the chair of the, the Arctic Council for Canada, uh, convened business representatives, pan-Arctic, in Iqaluit, Nunavut, Canada, uh, to have the discussion about forming the Arctic Economic Council. And the Arctic Economic Council was comprised of three business representatives from each of the eight Arctic states and three representatives from six indigenous organizations. So the board is a 42-member board. And we met in Canada, uh, organized the organization as an independent organization uh, from the Arctic Council, but its uh, purpose was to provide a business perspective to the work of the Arctic Council. And in 2015, uh, the Canadian chairmanship uh, transferred over to the, the U.S. in the Arctic Council, and it also uh, transferred over to uh, the U.S. Uh, within the Arctic Economic Council, and that's when I became the chair. Uh, they've established four working groups, uh, Arctic Stewardship, Maritime Transportation and Infrastructure, Responsible Resource Development, and Telecommunications. And so, um, as part of our chairmanship, really, I made a commitment to Finland that I would stand up the organization and, and turn over a fully functioning uh, association. And so, in September of 2015, we opened uh, the permanent secretariat office in Tromsø, Norway, and uh, put together the, the foundation of the, the Arctic Economic Council, uh, whereby establishing all of our strategic documents, our strategic plan, and the foundational documents for the organization. In addition to that, we, uh, I was very proud to bring the top of the world Arctic Broadband Summit to Barrow. And uh, my, my hometown, on a good day, about 5,000 people. If we're all home from college and, and the grandkids and everyone, if we're all there, it's about 5,000. So to bring 100 individuals from across the US and internationally to convene to talk about connectivity in the Arctic was a big <coughs> deal for uh, one barrow, Utpervik, um, and uh, for the Arctic Economic Council. And I was extremely pleased to report also that from Barrow, uh, when the chairmanship transferred to um, Taro Baurasti uh, from Finland, uh, they, they moved the venue to Oulu, Finland, to talk about, and they held their second, uh, they, they call it Top of the World Arctic Broadband <coughs> Summit, but uh, really Barrow is the top of the world, so. Uh, and I'm happy to answer any questions when it's appropriate. Tara, thank you Thanks. so much. Dana, now let's swing to the North Atlantic side of the Arctic. Something completely Welcome. different. So thank you for having me here today. I, I really appreciate it. Um, so I, I run something called the Maine North Atlantic Development Office, which um, is part of the Maine Department of Economic and Community Development, but it's run out of the Maine International Trade Center. 
And my role there is to develop trade and investment and collaboration activity between Maine and the North Atlantic region and High North. Um, so I work a lot with um, Northern Europe. I work with Atlantic Canada, Greenland, Iceland, the Faroe Islands even, and, and more and more with our friends in Alaska as well. In fact, um, we have uh, members of Maine's Ocean Cluster participating in uh, a webinar next week that's been organized by Institute of the North in Alaska to discuss um, fisheries utilization and um, aquaculture and best practices around those things. So it's, it's, it's good stuff and we're, we're excited to be a part of that. Um, the perspective I bring here today is that of um, a non-Arctic sub-state economic development entity that is engaging in the high north um, and pretty successfully too, if I might add. Um, you know, my, my office opened in 2014, but that was really pretty directly as a result of the Icelandic steamship company Aimskip moving their U.S. headquarters to Portland, Maine from Norfolk, Virginia. Um, with the arrival of Aimskip, um, you know, we have this invisible thread that connects us to ports throughout the North Atlantic and High North. Um, it wasn't there before. Um, we have... Um, doubled the size of the Port of Portland over the past two years. We've extended rail infrastructure up to the port. Um, just last night, Maine's, uh, uh, Maine's, Portland's planning board uh, voted unanimously in favor of um, building a cold storage facility in Portland that will further help us to leverage our port assets. Uh, so it's all moving in the right direction. And um, you know we've seen our our um, freight volumes go up considerably. Uh, you know, before the arrival of Aimskip, I think we were just shipping a few thousand tons per year of, um, of uh, containerized cargo out of Portland. We're up to about 150,000 tons a year now. Um, you know, by large port standards, that's, that's not a lot, but for Maine businesses, it's a very big deal. And, um, you know, we, we tell our companies that it now costs about the same to ship a container from Portland, Maine to Tromsø, Norway, as it would to take that same container, put it on a truck, and send it to Delaware. So think about that for a second and think about the, um, the real shift in mentality that would take place. It's a, it's a worldview change for a lot of our businesses. So we're shipping blueberries, we're shipping lobster, we're shipping uh, building materials, vehicles, um, bridge components. We actually shipped a bridge to Norway at one point. Uh, and um, you know, medicines, medical devices, um, it goes on and on. So we've, we're, we're slowly but surely building on this, this trade with, with the high north. And it's really shifted the mindset of, of people in Maine from thinking of ourselves as kind of being the, the end of the line for uh, Northeast uh, shipping and trade to being a hub. I mean, we, we are a hub with, with Reykjavik on the other side um, for two-way mutually beneficial shipping through, throughout the North Atlantic and Arctic. Um, so I think you know, part of what we were supposed to look at today was you know, what's hype and what's real. And you know, I, I can sit here and tell you that what's real for Maine right now is that we are really doing business 
with the high north. Um, and I think it's, um, it's for probably three reasons, obviously having a reliable logistics partner like, like Aimskip making a commitment to uh, the Port of Portland has allowed for that to happen. Um, having state and local government support, having uh, business community support, having the support of our, uh, our educational system, our, our higher ed folks, um, and the overall community to move forward with this effort has been, uh, has made us successful. And it's contributed to the whole idea of being deliberate about it. Um, you know, deciding that you're gonna do something and then get every, getting everyone behind you really helps you to get there. Um, so, you know, for those reasons, I think that it's happening now, and it, and it has nothing to do with uh, receding sea ice. It has nothing to do with opening of new sea routes. Um, we're using what we have right now, and, and we're seeing growth. So I think that's, that's an important message and probably a good message for some smaller Arctic communities as well. Um, it's a model that worked for Maine, and I think that we're definitely seen as one of the smaller states. You know, we're, we're a large landmass with a small population, um, and this has been uh, tremendously great for our, for our uh, business community. So, you know, around what is hype, I, I don't know what is hype. I mean, I, I think hype is maybe another word for things that just haven't come together quickly. Um, you know, some of the larger resource extraction projects will, will take time. Perhaps they'll happen over time. Um, you know, we, we are interested in Maine to know what's going to become of Arctic shipping. We, you know, Senator King was saying, and I think Senator Murkowski has said at past events that she sees, you know, Alaska and Maine as the bookends for Arctic shipping in, in the U.S. Um, I, I think what we can expect is probably something on a smaller scale. Um, you know, in, in Maine, we are successful with very niche shipping. You know, most of Aimskip's uh, vessels are um, smaller refrigerated vessels. So we do a lot of trade with food type commodities, um, any kind of refrigerated cargo. We can do things like building supplies as well. Um, and we do quite a bit of that. But I think our expectation is that um, you know, should shipping, incre shipping increase through the Northwest Passage uh, at some point, we will see an uptick in throughput, um, but it still, will still be a niche port, we'll still get the smaller ships, um, and it should be pretty manageable. So, you know, if I had a crystal ball <laughs> to guess where the, the infrastructure will, will take place, or rather what kind of infrastructure will take place shorter term, I would say, um, it would probably be around uh, marine infrastructure and some shipping. Um, it would probably be smaller scale, like in communities like the Port of Portland, um, but throughout the Arctic. Um, you know, so think about you know, new ports or fueling stations or even um, commitments to building greener ships. You know, I know Denmark has a green ship of the future initiative that um, I'm looking to connect some main companies to. Um, and I think that the economic benefit will follow from that. But do I think it's going to be um, you know, a, a huge opening of the Northwest Passage at some point and then all of a sudden a ton of shipping? I don't know. I don't, I don't know that that's going to happen. Thank you. Well, no, Dana, thank you. I think in some ways what we're really talking about is we're rethinking regional trading patterns. And I think in some ways it comes out of the larger we're rethinking uh, global shipping and, and global energy patterns as well. And, you know, sometimes 
thinking big is thinking small mm -hmm. and developing the interconnectedness and the network. So I, I think uh, don't don't uh, underestimate that's yeah. to think about a North Atlantic economy is really an important uh, new thinking process. I was just in London last week and thinking about the U.S.-U.K. future mm -hmm. trade agenda. That's uh, an interesting element of that as well. Okay, to put a downer on this conversation, <laughs> <laughs> to pop our bubble. Welcome, Steve Carmel. Thank you very much, Heather. Uh, thank you, everyone, for, for uh, uh, having me here today. I'm going to talk about Arctic shipping, and I'm going to use as a framework to, what, in our conversations anyway, a traditional kind of four-box uh, framework. Uh, uh, across one axis, you have what type of shipping is. It's either transit, which is uh, using the Arctic as a route between two places that are not in the Arctic. Uh, and destination, which is going into the Arctic for the purpose of being in the Arctic, and then which route, Northern Sea Route or, or Northwest Passage, or Canadian Northwest Passage, as the Canadians call it, to emphasize their view of who owns it. Um, so I'll start with the Northwest Passage, and I'll start with, with uh, destination uh, shipping. Um, you know, destination shipping is going to happen up there, uh, interestingly enough, in, in the Arctic anyway, uh, most destination shipping is actually not through the Northwest Passage. It's along the north coast of, of Alaska and places like that uh, to the extent destination shipping happens actually inside the Northwest Passage. Uh, it's, it's largely uh, indigenous community resupply missions, things like that. How much of that's going to happen in the future um, uh, remains to be seen. Uh, again, that's actually not driven by receding ice. It's driven by uh, commodity prices. Uh, as is everything that happens in the Arctic, ice is, is only one teeny little factor. Uh, uh, economics is everything up there. Um, so uh, in terms of things like the Red Dog Mine and stuff like that, that's there, it's operating, you know, it, it's, it's a huge resource for zinc and lead, that's not going to change. Now, the real issue is oil. Um, we've heard a lot of talk about oil. The fact is oil at $50 a barrel uh, makes Arctic oil uh, uh, uncompetitive. Uh, in terms of what's going to happen down the road, I saw a World Bank report uh, just the other day placed uh, oil uh, in nominal dollars at $80 a barrel in 2030. That's still way below break-even price for Arctic oil. Um, in terms of, of uh, the Alaska uh, situation, you know, again, Shell pulled out. We, we've heard it takes 10 to 15 years to get a, a field online. Um, from my discussions with the folks up at Shell, TAPS was... <coughs> Uh, on the downward slope in terms of volume and probably had maybe 10 years, if that, before the volume got so low that they had to close it. And there is no cold start capacity uh, for taps. So really, we are on the cusp of whether or not uh, Alaska is going to be able to stay in the oil business. If somebody doesn't get up there and start poking holes in the ground and get some capacity coming online soon, uh, you know, I personally and I know my colleagues here will probably throw things at me, that's why Heather uh, called me the downer, but I can certainly <laughs> see a situation where Alaska is out of the oil business in 10 years. So let's talk about uh, transit shipping through the Northwest Passage, which is going you know, from one place to the other through the Northwest Passage. First thing to consider is that the Northwest Passage, there's two, on the western side, there's two avenues to get in there, or two routes to get in there. One is McClure Strait up north. That's the one that's actually got some draft. When submarines go through there, uh, that's where they go. They go through McClure Strait, but they're going under the ice, not through it. Uh, because of the, the gyre in the, in, in the Arctic Ocean, ice that gets broken up because of melting and things like that just gets swept up and slammed right into McClure Strait. 
Ironically, uh, to the extent that uh, de-icing continues, uh, that situation is going to get worse. McClure Strait is always going to be choked with ice and unusable. That means in order to use the Northwest Passage for transit, you're coming through the Edmondson Gulf down south um, and then snaking your way through a variety of small channels around Banks Island, Victoria Island to try and get up to Perry Channel. Uh, uh, the controlling draft through those, they're poorly marked, they're very narrow, but the significant thing is a controlling draft is 10 meters, which is extremely small. Uh, then you add in the fact that you're dealing with very unpredictable ice flows. It changes dramatically from one day to the next. Um, bad weather, bad visibility, uh, plus the fact that uh, uh, you're not competing just with the Panama Canal. Principally, you're competing with railroads, uh, where if I want to get something quickly and reliably uh, from Asia uh, to the east coast of the United States, that's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to unload it in some place like Prince Rupert uh, and take it by a train. Uh, means that uh, the Northwest Passage for transit, aside from the occasional publicity stunt, will never be useful. And, and I'll put that you know, right on, never be useful. Uh, Meade Treadwell disagrees with me on that. He's probably only a steak dinner for years because he thinks otherwise. But the fact is, it's not going to be useful. Um, then we have uh, 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 cruise ships. Uh, which I'll bring up, they, they kind of straddle both. They go up there and they nose around in various parts of the Arctic and come back out. Uh, we did have the Crystal Serenity go through there last year, actually make the transit through the, through the Northwest Passage. I would point out that uh, everyone said the Crystal Serenity, Serenity this giant cruise ship, actually uh, she had a, a, a crew of you know, 600 or so and another 1,100 or so passengers. In cruise ship standards, she's fairly small. Uh, for cargo ship standards, she's outright teeny. Uh, she drew about eight and a half feet. We're not talking about a very big ship here at all. Um, so that's why she could do that. It took forever to get through there, from what I understand. Uh, cost about $20,000 a ticket. So I'm not expecting that there's going to be huge demand for that. But I will say that, that uh, Captain uh, Shaletto and the Costa Concordia has shown us that those things can sink. Uh, now, in Costa Concordia, it sank in the warm waters of the Mediterranean, literally feet from a well-developed port that was capable of, of treating and caring for those passengers and evacuating them out. None of that exists in, in the Canadian Northwest Passage or Northwest Passage. Uh, if that exact scenario, and it would be an interesting tabletop exercise, but if the exact scenario of Costa Concordia had happened up in the Northwest Passage, most of those people would die. And an icebreaker is not the answer to that problem. So, uh, that takes care of the Northwest Passage. Um, <laughs> write that off. <laughs> Forget about it. So now we go to the Northern Sea Route. Uh, destination shipping, clearly uh, that is an area where it happens. It's going to happen. Uh, the Russians, to the extent they, they can push it, um, will develop it. A huge chunk of the Russian GDP uh, comes from resources out of the Arctic. Uh, so it's very much an existential issue for them uh, to see that develop. Uh, they are, just like everyone else, subject to commodity prices and how much uh, of, of that can be developed remains to be seen. Uh, the Russians have had to uh, abandon projects up there. The Stokeman Field comes to mind simply because resources, uh, resource prices don't uh, support it. But clearly that's going to happen and it's going to keep happening. Uh, I know there's some Chinese interest in that. I think it's more geopolitical and economic, and, and certainly the dance the Russians and the Chinese do with each other over this is an interesting thing to watch. Uh, so, 
So that clearly, to the extent uh, shipping happens in the Arctic, it's going to be uh, driven on the Northern Sea Route, destination shipping, and the Russians extracting uh, uh, commodities from, from up there. Now, transit shipping. Uh, that, once again, is not uh, a particularly attractive thing, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Uh, number one, um, uh, the, the uh, Northern Sea Route, again, is draft constrained. Uh, depending on, on the route that you're able to take, 12 meters is probably a pretty good, pretty good uh, constraining draft. There are times, uh, the, the straight coming out of the, out of the Laptev, if, if you have to take the southern route, it's actually even shallower. Uh, again, you have variable, variable ice conditions. Actually, since, since uh, 2013, uh, the number of days the Northern Sea Route is open has actually been declining. Uh, it's, it's gone down, uh, down to 124, I believe, in 2016 from, from 150-something, uh, I, I think, in, in uh, 2013. So uh, it's not, it, the ice conditions are very variable. Remember, for, for global shipping, uh, our type anyway, um, uh, uh, schedule is everything. Uh, and that actually brings up the big thing. Oh, by the way, the other thing, uh, just to, to bear in mind, the biggest Ush Russian icebreaker going has a beam of 30 feet. Uh, uh, a Panamax container ship, which nowadays is small in, in, in global trade, has a beam of 32, which means that even a small ship has a beam bigger than the beam of an icebreaker that would be needed to break it out. That's obviously a very uncomfortable position. So this, this brings up when, when people say, okay, well, people are going to use the, North, the Northern Sea Route because it's shorter. I actually I testified in front of the Canadian Parliament, uh, told them, hey, nobody's going to use this stuff. Political scientist comes up behind me and says, the guy's nuts. You can look at a map and see it's shorter. And that kind of thinking is what informs bad models. Routinely, what you see is I'm going to take a port like Yokohama and connect it to Rotterdam, and I'm going to compare two single voyages. And that is just completely wrong. The world doesn't work that way. So first off, it's not like for like ships. If you're going to run through the Northwest pa or Northern Sea Route, uh, the biggest ship you can reasonably expect to get through there is maybe uh, 3,000 TEU, okay, 20-foot uh, container equivalent units. It's going to carry 3,000 containers. That is competing with the workhorse of Asia-Europe trade now, which is 18 to 19,000 TEU. That's really what matters is the cost per unit, not the cost of a voyage. So what you need to compare is the cost of running a 3,000 TEU ship versus the cost of running a, a 18 or 19,000 TEU ship. What, you don't, what those models never account for is the fact that a ship that is going to go through the Arctic has to be built to meet the polar code. All that extra stuff is only useful for a couple of months a year. Um, um, uh, you, you also have to consider network economics. We don't work on one port to another port. We work in strings where we service a whole bunch of ports on both sides. Those of maybe six or seven ships or 10 ships for Asia trade, uh, those ships run in a tightly coordinated schedule that are designed to interact with other tightly coordinated schedules on other routes. So the networks, you can't build a network around Arctic shipping. Network economics is extremely important. And then uh, a, another consideration is as we speak, uh, there's, there's efforts to, to put the requirements for fuel that exist for Antarctica, which means you can't have every fuel oil on board south of 60 South, put that same restriction on fuel in the Arctic, and if they do it, that means uh, uh, you can't have uh, fuel, heavy fuel oil on board once you get north of 60 North, 
uh, and instead of $300 a ton for bunkers, now you're up at $600 a ton for bunkers because you have to use the very expensive fuel up in the Arctic. So uh, the Northern Sea Route is a transit route. Once again, highly, un highly unlikely that will ever be useful for anything other than the occasional stunt. Uh, once in a while for heavy equipment, things like that. Uh, last year in 2016, there were 19 transits. Uh, two of them were coal shipments from Vancouver to Finland and, and accounted for three quarters of the cargo. Other than that, they're extremely small. Once in a while, uh, uh, you know, I think a, a, a thousand tons of frozen meat went through once, things like that. In terms of, of global trade, uh, not going to happen. Uh, and, and highly unlikely to ever happen. Which brings up my last point is somebody says, well, you know, let's look out uh, to mid-century. Then nice conditions will change and all sorts of things like that. But this is a mistake we often make when thinking about the Arctic and that we look at it as changing in isolation. The Arctic is not changing in isolation and you can't look at ice conditions that may or may not exist uh, mid-century on top of a geoeconomic, geopolitical situation that exists today. Uh, that is just flat wrong. So what you need to think about is what's the world going to look like uh, mid-century? We've already seen uh, France is talking about banning the sale of internal combustion engines by mid-century. That's going to obviously have, if many countries follow suit, major impact on the demand for oil and what oil economics <coughs> look like. Um, certainly uh, uh, we are at the front edge of a very big uh, new industrial revolution, changes in manufacturing technology and processes, uh, local on-demand manufacturing, 3D printing, things like that, by mid-century uh, will, will change the way trade happens. Um, it is entirely uh, possible uh, uh, to, to probably not, um, and I'm, I'm taking off any relationship I have to Maersk right now, this is me as a private citizen. Um, it's entirely feasible to think by mid-century uh, the idea of stuffing stuff in containers to move it across the ocean uh, as a way of having trade will be obsolete, in which case, who cares? You know, the, the Northern Sea Route may open, but no one will care. So, um, uh, you know, in short, um, in terms of shipping, destination shipping in Russia, that's going to happen, no question about it, driven largely by commodity prices. Transit shipping through the Northern Sea Route, Northwest Passage, uh, is going to be uh, determined by economics, and the economics aren't there, not going to happen. Steve, you were definitely part of the limitation section of that discussion. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, it's great. It's great food for thought. Uh, I can't wait to roll up our sleeves and get into the, to the questions. Um, so let me take the moderator's prerogative and, and begin. So um, Walter, uh, in some ways, Dana's presentation about rethinking our regional trading patterns, what you said about you know, where, how to get the energy to market. Alaskan energy has been for the U.S. market and energy independence for the United States. Could we be seeing a new trading pattern where really Alaskan energy will be for the Asian markets? Um, is that, again, rethinking our trading patterns here? Uh, is there some thinking, because, I, and in full disclosure, I was a participant in the National Petroleum Council's Arctic Research Study, I, certainly not technically competent at all, but as part of that discussion, really, where does it, ha where's the market, where are we going? And that brings up lots of questions on the transatlantic pipeline, which, you know, perhaps we can discuss. 
But is there, is there a thinking about maybe this is for export, not for energy independence, and does that change our thinking? Because if you sort of subscribe to, to Steve's more uh, incredibly sobering view, we, we, the challenge here is what is Alaska's rich energy resources for, if not for U.S. energy independence? Is it for export? So welcome your thoughts. And Tara, if you could sort of pitch in on that conversation as well. Oh. Exporting is certainly possible. There's been an LNG facility where there have been exports from there. there there's been approvals in the past to, to move some oil uh, to the Asian market, but uh, you still have the same economic challenges of getting oil from the North Slope to some place where you can uh, ship it overseas. Um, it would require even a larger infrastructure investment than getting the oil to, to taps. Uh, and um, so the question is, will the prices be large enough for long enough for companies to want to undertake that investment? Uh, will you be able to deliver it to Asia at a, a uh, competitive price, uh, given all of, of the other LNG facilities that are being built around the world that, that are aiming at that market, too? So is it possible? Yes. Um, is it likely? Uh, not in the immediate future, maybe longer term. So in some ways, um, even re opening the leases, and I'm sure there will be company interest in those leases, but unless you solve that broader challenge of, of where it is going and how to get it to those markets, there's some limitation in even opening up the lease. It's an opportunity now that was foreclosed earlier, but that's still a fundamental challenge. And that's really the, yes. the challenge for Alaska's economic model in the future, right? Well, I, I think that's right. That's why they're the area is so underexplored, um, and, and where you've had the most exploration is in those, those prospects that are, are relatively close to TAPS and, and the other fields near Prudhoe that you can build into that existing infrastructure. Um, there, there have been a couple of thoughts over how you see uh, more investment in oil and gas offshore. The, the Shell model was to find something really big in the Chukchi and big enough to support building that infrastructure, connecting it, and allowing everything in between to tap into that. The other approach is, well, you sort of move incrementally. As you, as you find things, you expand the infrastructure a little bit, and it, right. it, 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 and it makes more, uh, uh, more prospects accessible. Um, uh, either way, it's, it's, it's a very long game, and uh, you're dealing with a lot of, of, of uncertainty, as, as uh, Stephen talked about, as to uh, whether the returns will be there in the long term, and that's, that's what companies wrestle with in deciding what investments to make. Yeah, it, it just seems to me that, that really Shell did not find that big find, uh, right. and the limitations were so great. Uh, and I, I think it's also a cautionary tale to future energy companies, you know, over some estimates $9 billion over seven to 10 years, with very little to show. That's a, that's a cautionary tale, I fear. Tara, this is obviously foremost on your mind every day uh, for the state and for state officials that are seeing uh, a budget literally transform in a very negative way. Mm -hmm. where, where, what are some of the thinking going on within the North Slope Regional Corporation, but within, also within Juno's thinking of sort of how do we repurpose, rethink Alaska's energy picture? That's a great question, and I would love to know what's going on in Juneau right now and how they're thinking, because uh, uh, oil and gas tax, uh, the oil and gas tax debate is one that is very healthy and thriving in Alaska, and uh, it seems to be the topic that everyone's talking about. 
uh, around the dinner table. And uh, on the North Slope, we have um, a, a very strong and keen interest to see those resources developed responsibly. Uh, because when, when you understand the, the population uh, of Alaska Natives, Inupiaq, Inuit uh, people, the environment really is important to us because we are the aboriginal environmentalists. We uh, depend on the land and the sea to, to feed our families, whether it's with uh, marine mammals or terrestrial animals like uh, caribou, whale, seal, walrus, fish, and and um, in in Alaska, uh, we continue to have the debate about oil and gas taxes. We need to attract that investment or reinvestment into the region. And right now, we're just we're not there. And yes, uh, the the Steve, when you were talking about. Uh, your sobering facts, uh, those, that's a reality. And we have those considerations before us. There is tremendous resource potential onshore and offshore in Alaska that has been untapped, uh, but getting it to market is, is a challenge. And when you look at uh, the, the pure gas potential, it's enormous. Uh, but the legislature needs to uh, do its job and show some leadership to help attract in that investment in, in Alaska uh, and, and be, continue that debate about a, um, a natural gas pipeline. Uh, for it, and and I, my apologies, I don't know the technical aspect of this. Um, what is the time horizon for taps when the volume becomes now so critically low that it really challenges the use of the pipeline? I mean, give us a, a give us a sense of when that when that really becomes a critical issue. I know it's been much discussed. It's critical. But now, I would today. say it's critical today okay. when uh, you look at Alaska Pipeline having to uh, loop oil to heat it up to, to send it down the pipeline. The, the, the wax buildup inside that, the TAPS line uh, is problematic and so uh, I think right now they're at 500,000 barrels a day, Drew, yeah. But any lower, um, we're, we're going to be in trouble. And Walter, this is really in part compelling some of the, uh, the urgency within Department of Interior to, to address this issue, or what's, what's, this, what's, the, what's the sense within the department on TAPS? Um, I, I, I know that's a little off your uh, it's beat. It's a, a little <laughs> off my beat, but um, I think that you know, the department does recognize the, the, the challenge and, and that if you are going to develop resources up there for the foreseeable future, you need TAPS. Uh, so yeah. some, some of the additional development that's going on will feed into that. We'll keep TAPS running uh, a bit longer. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it, it is a fundamental constraint long term as to, to whether you can keep TAPS running long enough for for some of the, the, the larger prospects to come in. And it's important to remember that TAPS, keeping the TAPS line open is not uh, only important for Alaska, but this really is a national security issue in terms of energy development, domestic energy development and energy supply, uh, where Alaska and our resources play a critical role in domestic energy supply. Uh, getting that oil and, and 
the products to market uh, for uh, U.S. consumption is is critical. Otherwise, uh, we will be importing oil from regions that are hostile uh, towards the United States, and that is a huge threat to national security. Uh, when you look at Alaska and you have our doorstep neighbors, Canada and Russia, uh, on either side of us, Alaska plays a critical role in our national security. Right. And, and Tara, just one editorial comment, then I want to uh, turn to Dana and Steve. Um, We've done a lot of thinking. You know, the, the problem is we are the U.S. Is, is having a difficult time changing its energy mentality from uh, an importer and ever concerned about independence mm -hmm. to potentially a global supplier, mm -hmm. energy abundance. That mindset, but it also is about Alaska's energy purpose mm -hmm. in that transformation. And I think that is really the key question. It is a national security question, and we have to rethink energy independence in this very new energy landscape. Now, someone who's really talking out of her lane, uh, I will uh, step back and go back to doing what I know about the Arctic. Um, uh, so Dana and Steve, I'm gonna combine you. Steve, something that, you, well, many things you said caught my attention, but the one that I really liked is that sort of that idea of networked economies, and you talked about, and again, in shipping speak, which I don't understand, um, sort of the, the, you know, the string of ports, and I wanted to marry that concept with what Dana is trying to do in rethinking those trade patterns, how you can get, you know, the ports to start rethinking and realigning. Could we have a sort of a port infrastructure that looks at northern Europe holistically in the high north? So in some ways, what, what Dana's been trying to do with, with Iceland, uh, Denmark, the Nordic countries, you could even repurpose that into Western Russia potentially. Could you start seeing where those shipping patterns become more regional? Is that how you perceive the network economies or have this totally not correct? Well, there's, there's uh, two, two aspects uh, to it. Again, taking the idea that going through uh, the Arctic is, is not, not going to work. But we actually do, uh, w when you put together a network, um, as I said, there's, there's the line haul part of it, which is the long distance part. Uh, and and uh, um, uh, for instance, uh, one that I happen to know pretty well because we operated is there's a, a string that goes from the east coast of the United States through the Mediterranean up over to, to Southwest Asia and back. It's a weekly service every week. You can set your clock by when a ship is going to be in there. There's seven ships on a six-week rotation, so basically pretty much very routinely. Those schedules are designed to intersect similar schedules. For instance, in Algeciras, where if I'm bringing cargo from Southwest Asia, I drop it off in Algeciras, and another regional network picks it up and moves it along. Same thing works for Northern Europe. You get the line haul guys that coming out of Asia in the 18, 19,000 TEU ships uh, come through the uh, Suez, go up to the big ports in, 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 in uh, Europe that can handle ships of that size, you know, the Rotterdams and, and places like that. And then there's a feeder network of smaller ships that pick that stuff up. Once again, regular schedules, regular runs, uh, designed so that the dwell time for a box in a particular port is very limited, picks it up and moves it on. Now, in places like Northern Europe, um, once again, once you're inside a region, you're not just competing with water, you're competing with rail and trucking and things like that, so it depends on where it's going. So we actually, that's the way networks are built and they're designed to operate uh, uh, together. Um, so 
uh, I think container ships uh, do call as far north as Boston. They certainly they can go. We actually have ships that go uh, into Montreal and, and places like that. They tend to be smaller uh, uh, regional type ships. Uh, but the big volumes of trade uh, are, are line hauling in smaller regional hubs that are built around them, kind of like hub and spoke in, in, rail, in yeah. airlines. No, that's exactly the, the vision that I had. And before I turn to, to Dana, one route that you didn't mention, Steve, um, I almost dare to dive here, the transpolar route. We have <coughs> Costco that annually tests the transpolar. And the reason I say that because in my view, the, the, the Chinese may have a, a more strategic, at least some theories of the more strategic view is the transpolar and a lot of the Chinese investment in Iceland, the Iceland-Chinese Free Trade Agreement, has to do with getting Chinese goods to Iceland as a dispersion for the North Atlantic, either Northern Europe or the North Atlantic. Fantasy, uh, if not fantasy, maybe I'll let Dana take that fantasy and think about how future trading patterns would look like if in fact a transpolar route would be even a possibility. Well, certainly a transpolar route takes care of the, of, the, uh, <coughs> of the draft problem. There's no draft issue. It doesn't take care of things like uh, construction uh, standards and fuel and network economics and the fact that um, it's only useful. I, I, unless we are actually talking about an ice-free Arctic in the winter, in which case the world is a very different place, uh, you know, now we're in a Hunger Games kind of uh, scenario. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that fact is going to remain. And, and changing a network, reorienting a network from one uh, uh, string to another is extraordinarily expensive, which is another thing that's never captured in these models. So, um, uh, the, again, the Chinese fool around with an awful lot of stuff. They're experimenters. Uh, but what is going to work from a practical, commercial aspect is very different and, and I don't think I've seen anybody say a transpolar route is going to be useful until well after mid-century and now we're into what's the world going to look like mid-century uh, and it's not going to look like what it looks like today. Dana, mm -hmm. thoughts on thinking about where you have a much more robust international trading dynamic with Iceland and rethinking your proposition. You've, you've planted a seed in, in building, again, more the micro, uh, the niche sites. Could you grow and build and think about a larger trading space? Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, I, I really look at the Port of Portland and, and Reykjavik as, as hubs to one another. So, you know, what's shipping back and forth in those containers between Portland and Reykjavik are not for, you know, it's not just for, for the Icelandic market. Um, you know, short sea shipping is really what it's all about. So we may ship a container from, from Portland to Reykjavik, but it may end up in New Greenland, it may end up in Rotterdam. Um, there's an existing network that allows for us to do that. So, you know, have I thought ahead to whether we can get our products to Asia? Not so much at this point. Um, and, you know, after hearing Steve talk, I don't know that it's ever possible, but, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting though, Steve, because I, I, I know I read recently, or I, I might have even heard someone speak at a conference, but I think it was someone from the Polar Research Institute of China was saying that um, they were projecting that something along the lines of 15% of China's trade might sail on the Northern Sea Route by 2020, which is in three years. So um, is that 
impossible? Is it, and what, what would they be shipping? Well, I'll say that, that uh, again, the Chinese uh, um, are very uh, strategic people and not always motivated by dollars or motivated by uh, geopolitical considerations. So they'll do whatever they think is in their country's best interest. From a purely economic uh, perspective, uh, it wouldn't work. Um, now, uh, I will say that, that there's a lot of people that are quite happy to talk about what might happen and what may happen um, uh, because hype is important in this game. I, I remember there was two years ago, two years ago, um, the, the news was in, in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, they all ran kind of the same story. Uh, oh my God, the, the age of container shipping through the Northern Sea Route is here. Costco just ran a container ship through the Northern Sea Route. The picture, I have copies of it here if anybody wants to see it. The picture was a Panamax container ship under the headline, Costco runs container ship through the Northern Sea Route. Um, but you read the article, and the ship that actually ran through there was a ship called the Yangshang. She's, instead of a 50,000 or 70,000 ton uh, Pan Panamax container ship, what the Yangshang is, is about a 19,000 ton heavy lift ship that is an regular in the Arctic. She's up there all the time. Um, in fact, in, in 2015, she accounted for three quarters of the total cargo volume through the Northern Sea Route. And she carries things like generators and windmill blades and stuff like that. Uh, on one particular voyage, uh, she happened to be, have some free deck space, so they strapped a couple of containers on there, and Costco ran a story that said, see that, we're running containers through the Northern Sea Route, uh, with very misleading, outright deceptive pictures mm. attached to it. So, um, uh, but I tell you what, most of the world said, yep, Costco's running container ships through the Arctic. I think I hear a little bit of buying into that right now. Uh, but that's not what happened. And so, uh, you know, I take uh, what Costco says uh, with uh, a container ship full of salt. <laughs> so, how do you overcome that, Dana? <laughs> I don't know. But getting, getting back to the idea of, of building networks for this kind of trade, uh, you know, it, it's something that we, we have in place through AIMSKIP. And, and further to that, um, there is uh, an engineering and consulting firm called Ramble. It's a global entity. Their, their headquarters is in Denmark. Um, they have an office in Portland, Maine. And um, they have an Arctic director who's based in Tromsø, Norway, whom we worked with quite a bit. Um, he's taken an interest in Maine's interest in this region. Um, but he just sent me some, some materials the other day, and it looks like Ramble is looking to organize something that I, I think they're going to call the High North Atlantic Shipping Forum. And the whole idea behind it is for Ramble to bring together uh, businesses uh, and port directors from places like Portland, Maine, Newt, Greenland, uh, Tromsø, Norway, places that already have existing um, shipping connections, but bring them together um, to really figure out how can, how can we fill these vessels going in both directions? How can we do a better job of connecting personally and, and building business? And it's, it's very simple, um, but I think it's actually a pretty good idea because the communities that we're shipping to and, and shipping from um, are, are kind of small communities like we are as well. So it's very easy to get to know all of the key players very quickly. 
Um, and at least in my experience in working with, with Iceland, especially, I mean, you can get to know everyone very quickly. I see the president of Reykjavik University in the back of the room now, and uh, I see him everywhere. <laughs> so it must be traveling in the right circles. Um, I think it's a very simple idea, but I think that um, you know, Ramble's going after some grant funding to ensure that we can physically get together and have these conversations, and um, it, it may very well work. Sounds like a great opportunity for the Arctic Economic Council. Uh, let's bring our audience in uh, for with any questions. We've certainly given you a lot of food for thought here. If you could please raise your hand and identify yourself and your affiliation. And if you have a specific question to a panelist, please let us know. We'll bundle a few and then we'll come back to our panelists. So who's got a question? Who is the courageous first one? Aha, in the back. Yes, sir, please. Hi, Jack Victory with Capitol Hill Consulting Group. Um, for Tara Sweeney, um, as I understand it, you guys have private property located in Anwar, and I'm wondering why you're not able to, to develop your own resources to not only help um, your shareholders and TAPS and the economy of Alaska. Um, and my second question is, as part of AEC, you talked about connectivity, and what I hear there's a broadband program going on in Alaska, and if you want to discuss that at all. Great. Do we have any other questions? We'll stop in the first round, and we'll let Tara go ahead, please. That's not a controversial question. <laughs> uh, so as Jack mentioned, uh, ASRC is a private landowner inside the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. We own 92,000 acres of subsurface estate, and the surface estate is owned by our village corporation in the village of Kaktolvik, which is the only community inside uh, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, Kaktolvik is about 240 people and uh, surrounded by federal land, and it would take an act of Congress to open up oil and gas development inside uh, the coastal plain. Uh, for those who may not be familiar with Alaska and Alaska Native Corporations, ASRC is a native corporation uh, established uh, pursuant to the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971, whereby Congress mandated that Alaska, instead of the lower 48 uh, Indian reservation model, Alaska would be divided up into 12 land-based regions, and each region would have a regional corporation, and uh, each community would have a village corporation. So in our region, we have eight village corporations uh, and one regional corporation. So again, ASRC owns the subsurface, inside the coastal plain, 92,000 acres, and Kaptolvik Inupiat Corporation owns the surface estate. And uh, Jackie would take an act of Congress for us to uh, develop those resources. And there is strong support in Alaska and strong support on the North Slope for opening up the coastal plain of Anwar. Moving on to something a little less controversial uh, and something that we're extremely excited about is the Quintillion Subsea Cable Project uh, that is, um, is 
there are three phases to this project, but the intent is to connect uh, Asia to the UK uh, through fiber optic cable. And the first phase of the project is to uh, bring Alaska online and primarily the North Slope. And ASRC uh, is a partner with uh, a private equity group and Quintillion uh, to have landing sites in uh, some of our communities. And Quintillion has already laid the cable uh, along the Alaska coastline. Uh, they've also um, they've also dug the trenches for the and built the terrestrial line uh, so that there is redundancy and we anticipate having broadband connectivity uh, along the north slope of Alaska by the fourth quarter of this year, which is huge because uh, when you look at connectivity in the Arctic in in the U.S. Arctic. In particular, uh, we've paid exorbitant prices for um, uh, low, uh, extremely slow uh, access and uh, poor quality. And uh, we're about to have the, um, the North Slope transformed in terms of connectivity and uh, opportunities for e-commerce and an improvement in our uh, education system, our health care, uh, there certainly are uh, significant benefits that we're looking forward to with that connectivity. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a, been a huge outcome, I think, uh, and kudos to the Arctic Council for creating the Broadband Task Force mm -hmm. and really pushing this connectivity. It's, it's important for a range of issues. Walter, I'm going to pop back to you, and while our audience is still thinking about some of their questions, um, and I want to talk about the, the drilling that Eni is going to be doing at the end of this year. Um, and, uh, you know, concerns Senator Murkowski raised about uh, oil spill response. Um, there was a, a spill uh, in Cook Islet that took quite a, quite a bit of time to, to stop. Wondering uh, if you could offer some, some thoughts on, and clearly there are, are environmental groups that are very concerned about this drilling and already and concerned about the reopening of the lease issue, but help us understand how in working with other agencies, the Department of Interior is focusing on you know, prevention of any oil spill, which would be so devastating uh, to, uh, to the communities that live there. We, we spend a, a lot of time at the department um, looking at that. The, the goal, as you said, is prevention. Um, you cannot eliminate the risk of a spill, but you can work to minimize it, and you can make sure that the, the folks that are overseeing are, are vigilant. Um, there's been a lot of investment into technologies for, for cleaning spills as well. Um, the, the eating drilling in particular is being done from a gravel island. There's an exploration well. Um, there, there's a great track record for exploration wells uh, from Gravel Island. The Cook Inlet uh, spill you mentioned is actually was a pipeline leak. Uh, and, and so it's a, a very different uh, type of, of, of event that happened there. Uh, but again, one that, that would require over time a lot of vigilance right. to make sure that sort of thing doesn't occur. Uh, and um, so, so there's been a, you know, the, the, those were decades old pipes. The technology is better, the standards are, are tougher than when those were built, and uh, though you cannot eliminate the risk, I think you can manage it. Okay. Excellent. Going back out to our audience to see if there are any other questions or thoughts. 
All right, yes, it always takes a little time to get everybody warmed up, but there we go. So I think we're gonna start to the gentleman there and then we'll just proceed. We'll take those three questions in a row. Yes, sir, please. Hi, my name is Justin Margolis with the government of Quebec. And I'm just wondering about the indigenous peoples and what you see as the future of CSR as economic activity expands in the Arctic. Corporate Great. social responsibility. Corporate social responsibility and indigenous communities. Thank you. And then we have questions over here. Sir, if you just, yep. Uh, was it? Sorry, yep, over there. Yes, thank you. Uh, John Dahlberg, Energy Policy Research Foundation. Question for Dr. Krukshank. Um, do you think there's an urgency to open up new leasing projects offshore as TAPS uh, throughput continues to decline and possibly approaches its minimum throughput? Thank you. I think we had one more co a colleague right here, right up front. Thank you so much. Hi, uh, Chris Knight with Argus Media. This is a question for Dr. Krukshank. Um, when the Obama administration was canceling the lease sale plan in the Arctic last time around, they cited low interest from oil companies as one of the reasons. I was wondering if you could characterize if, if oil companies are indeed interested in going back into offshore drilling, um, not like a gravel pad, but like what Shell did. Great, okay. Uh, Tara, maybe I'll ask you to sort of talk about how engagement, uh, corporate engagement in the indigenous communities works. You might even, uh, if you, any thoughts of, because of watching the Shell development, there was a, it was an interesting <coughs> journey, evolution, I'll put it that way. And then Walter will turn to you to answer those last two questions. Thank you. Uh, in terms of corporate social responsibility, uh, you sh people should study the Shell model yes. because, uh, and, and our people were on the front lines of uh, that engagement. And when they uh, first came to Alaska, uh, they stumbled a bit coming out of the gate. Uh, they, and then, uh, what they did was they, they pulled back, took a look at their, their practices and how they were engaging uh, with local communities and local stakeholders and changed course. And uh, in the end, what you saw what were communities that were embracing that uh, development and uh, working with Shell on ensuring that their uh, practices were going to be uh, safe uh, and that the communities were going to be involved in any sort of response effort. Uh, they worked with us to ensure that as they were out in, in the Chukchi that they had marine mammal observers that were local uh, because we, we were looking out for our food source. Uh, Shell, in the end, did a fantastic job in working with uh, local stakeholders and engaging with the communities uh, and working with local businesses at, at, to the point where uh, our communities created an organization called Arctic Inupiat Offshore where uh, we were a partner with Shell in, in the Chukchi and uh, so when they uh, pulled out uh, from that development project, it had an impact on, on our communities. It's important to also look at how the Coast Guard uh, engaged in the U.S. Arctic, and they did it right from the very beginning uh, when, when there was discussion about uh, 
or increased focus on the Arctic, the Coast Guard uh, engaged with the community right away, uh, reached out to uh, the local leadership and held the appropriate amount of meetings and types of meetings and provided information. They were very transparent. And that partnership with the Coast Guard, uh, the North Slope is so thankful for. And the, the message that I, I would tell anyone looking to uh, do business in, in the Arctic, whether it's in the US Arctic or um, Pan-Arctic, is you absolutely need to go local first. It's the best de-risking agent uh, that any project could have is by working uh, immediately with local stakeholders. Fantastic, Walter. Oh, there are a couple of different questions there with regard to taps in the offshore. I think for the near future, it's those nearshore projects in the Beaufort that, that can, can most quickly be developed and, and add to the taps flow. Larger projects farther away, um, t taps would have to be able to stay open quite a while for, for, for them to avail themselves of that. As to industry interest, um, I will tell you that industry will tell us they're interested, but we won't know for sure uh, until you, you make the opportunity available and see if they invest. Part of what happened with uh, companies turning back their leases, uh, which was the basis for the Obama administration statement, was those were leases that were nearing the end of their lease term. They had one, one and a half years left to run, and companies simply weren't going to be able to figure out how to, to put together a, a solid exploration plan and, and make something happen in that time frame. Um, if you have a lease sale a few years down the road, new 10-year leases, uh, there might be some companies that are, are willing to say that's an option that I want to, to, want to have. Maybe I'll acquire a lease just to see how the world develops and see if, if, if there's more money they want to put in. But again, it, all we can really do is, is uh, decide whether or not to, to allow access to the area, whether the actual investment occurs will be up to the companies at, the, at that time. I would also say that around our discussion table in Alaska, uh, one of the concerns was regulatory uncertainty and uh, delays at the federal level uh, certainly played a part in the economics of that shell discovery. And so moving forward throughout the, my tenure at the Arctic Economic Council, one area that we hit hard on was the fact that Pan-Arctic, we need regulatory certainty if there's going to be responsible economic growth in our communities. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to, um, I, and, and Walter, you are excused from this exercise, but you can, you can pitch in if you like. I'm going to ask you the same final question that I asked Senator King and Senator Murkowski. If you had one piece of advice for the Trump administration on U.S. Arctic policy, what would it be? Steve, I'm going to start with you because I cannot end any conversation at CSIS <laughs> on that pessimistic evidence. I'm going to start with you, and Dana, you're going to be my optimistic champion as we head out of here. Steve, go ahead. I think uh, first a, a realistic uh, assessment of what is likely to happen there uh, is fundamental to, to developing uh, not only an Arctic policy but an Arctic uh, investment strategy. I think that um, some serious rethink on whether or not icebreakers are the right investment needs to be made. Uh, the United States needs persistent presence. Uh, ISR, C2 capability, uh, the ability to operate uh, freely in the Arctic, 
Uh, I do not believe icebreakers are the way to do it. There are other investments that would probably uh, provide better value for the dollar than a billion dollar plus uh, uh, icebreaker whose mission can be accomplished uh, uh, better other way. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Tara? I, I would say, um, actually, it would be two things, but taking a holistic approach to uh, Arctic strategy, having it coordinated amongst the, the various agencies, looking at infrastructure development in the U.S. Arctic is going to be key uh, as Alaska continues its role in uh, our national security. And so when you look at the Arctic and its importance to this nation, uh, I would ask that they move the move the um, Arctic kind of policy people uh, that are inside the State Department uh, scattered throughout the department into uh, the creation of an Arctic Bureau inside the State Department populated with people uh, who are science experts but also local Alaskan uh, experts and uh, to ensure that that perspective is carried out throughout uh, the U.S., um, throughout the State Department, but also as the U.S. continues to develop its Arctic strategy that, again, going local, uh, but creating an Arctic Bureau inside of the State Department and moving it out of the, the Oceans Management Group. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, Walter, do you want to audit the question? Uh, I, I would just add one thing. Oh, good. Uh, going back to uh, uh, Senator King's statement that includes science and infrastructure. Science and, and infrastructure. And that is something we're heavily involved with. We're not Great. necessarily known as a science agency, but uh, we do have a vigorous environmental research program. We've invested about $500 million in Alaska scientific research um, since the program was created uh, 40 years ago, uh, and cooperating with a lot of others. Uh, so physical oceanography, sea ice dynamics, marine mammals, a, a whole host of topics. And, and one of the things that's important there as well that, that we've been trying to improve our capability at, um, and we think we're at the forefront, but we're not where we need to be, is, is, is working uh, to incorporate traditional knowledge into uh, our understanding of what's going on up there and, 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 and roll that into our decision making. Excellent. Dana, you have the benediction. Ooh, wow. Well, you know, I, I, these are all incredible ideas. I don't know how much more I can improve upon them, you know, other than to say I, we really need to decide how we want to define our presence in the Arctic. Um, you know, U.S. is an Arctic nation because of Alaska, so I would hope that we would give them a, or support them in getting a, a, a deep water port in Nome, which I think is badly needed. Um, you know, I do think we need some icebreaker capabilities as well, and whether we build those or whether we lease them from Finland or elsewhere, um, that's definitely something we need to look at. Um, you know, and I, I'm excited that uh, the Arctic Economic Council is, is off and running, and um, I, I really think that their biggest project is going to be determining where the Pan-Arctic um, in infrastructure priorities are and how we can all come together to support those. Um, so yeah, I, I think infrastructure is at the core of it and it's probably largely based around marine infrastructure. 
Well, it's been great. As I mentioned in the, the beginning, I was really, as I coming into this conversation, saying, you know, we now need to start re rewriting, you know, writing the next chapter. Uh, it's sort of been a, a slow closeout in some ways of this particular phase of, of U.S. Arctic development, which over the last eight, nine years has been incredible. Uh, the strategies, the, the new uh, personnel, the chairmanship, it just gave us a lot of energy. And now we're like, okay, now what? What's next? And I think you all helped us understand what's next, which is that persistent presence, that infrastructure, the science, the traditional knowledge that is part of that, that we can explore opportunities, uh, but that there are real, real limitations to this. So break through the hype, be realistic. But Steve, I'm going to be optimistic in my realism. Um, and uh, But four of you gave us an exceptional insight into uh, this region and to understanding the economic potential. So with your applause and keeping these cool Arctic thoughts in your mind as you go out into that humidity, <laughs> please thank me uh, in joining us. Thank you.